Now, we've heard the story of people who grew up with a silver spoon in their mouths. I don't know if we use that expression anymore. It just means they had all the advantages. They grew up with money. Maybe they had a family that loved them. Maybe they just had the open door to opportunities. And, and we're not surprised when people who, who grew up with a silver spoon in their mouth, they go on and they achieve great things. But suppose it was just the opposite. It may very well have been in your life. Let's just say you grew up and you didn't have anybody in your corner. Maybe you grew up and nobody believed in you. Maybe they told you that you were slow or dumb or fat or stupid. Maybe you grew up and you didn't have parents who loved you or you didn't have people that invested in your life. Suppose you grew up in a bad place. And most of all, suppose you grew up in a place where people believed that you had no future. But then suppose it all turned around. And instead of living out a life with no future, you turned it all around and you went to the top. That does happen. People do that. In fact, that's what this series is about. It's called, well, as you can see, originally the word was hopeless, but the less is fading away because hope is rising. Someone who came out of nowhere is going to go to the top. It happens in business, doesn't it? You know, we're not surprised when somebody goes to the top of business if they went to, you know, they, they went to a prep school and they go to an Ivy League school and then they make the right connections and their father or their mother had connections with a particular business and they go to the top. We're not surprised about that. But then there are those people that when they go to college, they're the first member of their family to ever go to college and they don't start out in an Ivy League school. They're not at Brown or Princeton or Cornell or Yale or Dartmouth. <laughs> they're in community college. And because that's all they can afford. And then after community college, they go to a small college out of nowhere. And then they take, on, they take a job with a company that nobody's ever heard of, but they do so well. They begin to climb through the ranks. And finally, they get an opportunity to Fortune 500 company. And then the next thing you know, they're on the cover of Forbes or Fortune. And you know what's always said about a person like that? I mean, there's a question that we ask. You know, the question is, and you'll read that in the article, in the bio piece, where does she come from? Where did he come from? Happens in sports. Hey, if you like NFL football, you know that even though the season's over, one of the biggest days of the year is coming up in just a few weeks. NFL draft. Now, that's the opportunity for NFL teams in a round-robin basis to select, to select players. And so you know how it is. The, the team that had the worst season before, they get to pick first. And the next, next team picks. And the next team picks. And, and so right now, you know, everybody is asking the question, you know, who is this team going to draft? Who is that team going to draft? And is this person worth a first-round pick? Is this person worth a third-round pick? But, you know, here's the thing. It's, and it is interesting because as soon as the draft is over, it's going to say, well, this team had a good draft. This team had a good draft. And they, they did the right thing in the first round. But when September rolls around and we get into the regular season, it always happens. There's this player that nobody saw coming. He, he didn't get drafted. He wasn't even invited to the combine in Indianapolis. He's just like comes out of nowhere. And the next thing you know, he's a star in the NFL and every team would trade three first-round draft picks for this player that nobody drafted. And what is it that the guys here calling the game always say? Where did he come from? Happens in politics. You know, there are, there are people who become president and we're not really surprised. JFK, John F. Kennedy, his dad was a multimillionaire. His dad had been the ambassador to Great Britain. He had connections in all industries, Hollywood, business, everywhere else. I mean, I'm not saying JFK didn't earn it. He was a great president. I'm just saying he grew up with a silver spoon in his mouth. George Walker Bush, George W. Bush, his dad was president of the United States. His grandfather, Prescott Bush, was a U.S. senator. I mean, we're not surprised. But Abraham Lincoln, where did he come from? And he became the greatest president 
America's ever known. That's what my series is about because I believe there are people who come out of nowhere and they go to the top. These are the people that didn't have the advantages, didn't get the silver spoon, didn't have all the breaks. They just come out of nowhere. And the next thing you know, everybody's asking, where did she come from? There are two books in the Bible that are named after women. One of the books is Esther. We talked about her story in the legendary series. But if you have not yet fallen in love with the other book, I think you'll do it by the time this series is over. One of my all-time favorite books in the Bible is a little four-chapter book nestled in the Old Testament called Ruth. Because Ruth is a glorious example of how to come out of nowhere and go to the top. She is the awesome example of starting out life with hopeless and ending life not only with her own personal hope, but by transforming the situation of all the people around her. That's the good news. And now for the bad news. Man, bad news is we're not going to get to meet Ruth very much today. You know, we're going to have a whole lot of fun in the next sermons, but today is not going to be all that much fun because here's the thing. The story of Ruth is like so many stories of hope. It, it starts out hopeless, and it starts off because somebody made a bad decision. And when this story all starts, Ruth is a little girl. And while we're not going to get to see her much today, I'll just tell you what's going on in her life. Ruth lives in a place called Moab. Moab is about the worst place you can imagine. If, if Judah is God's place, Moab is the devil's place. And I mean in every sense of the word. The nation of Moab started in incest. Young woman got her dad drunk. They had sex, had a baby, and the baby's name was Moab. That's how the country got started. Started in incest, went down from there. It never was a good place. I mean, every kind of sexual debauchery happened there. Every kind of wickedness, dishonesty, unhealthy lifestyle, it was in Moab. God had told the people of Israel that they weren't to have anything to do with Moab. And beyond that, God had said this. I found this kind of interesting. God had said nobody from Moab was to be able to enter the temple of God for 10 generations. That was God's way of saying these people don't change. And that's where Ruth lived. Oh, one more thing. They have a God, small g. They have a God called Chemosh, C-H-E-M-O-S-H. Chemosh was this big idol with a hollowed out belly that was really a furnace. And if the people of Moab thought their crops weren't producing like they should or they wanted something they weren't getting, you know what they did? They just sacrificed one of their babies. They put their baby in alive to burn alive in this furnace. That's where Ruth is growing up. You talk about growing up with no advantages and no future. Well, that's Ruth. But we're going we're gonna to just set her aside for a moment and leave her there because you need to meet a family who lives in Bethlehem, Judah. Let's meet them. The dad's name is Elimelech. His name means my God is king. I'm assuming Elimelech was a nice guy. He's a God follower. He'd be like a new springer. He's just a nice guy. He's married to a woman named Naomi. Naomi is hot. Even though she, you know, she's, she's like going out for like Miss Jerusalem, you know, she'd be in the Mrs. Jerusalem pageant. She is something to see. Her name means pleasant. She is awesome to look at. They have two boys. They have a son named Malin and a son named Killian. So let's just meet this family and let's see how this bad decision evolves. You got your Bibles open? Hope you bring your Bible to this or hope you bring an electronic device where you can look at, look at this in Scripture. We're in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. The Bible says, in the days when the judges are ruling. What do you know about that? If you like to study your Bible, what do you know about that period of time? 
Well, there is a book in your Bible called Judges. And guys, I promise you, if you just want to like experience a spiritual uplift, I really wouldn't advise you to read the book of Judges. It is one of the most, strike that, it is the most depressing book in the Bible. Because God's people are just going in a circle. God blesses them, and then they forget about him, and they start living screwed up lives, and then God lets them to go, go through difficult times, and then they start crying out for help, and then God gives them a leader or a judge, and he delivers them or she delivers them. And then they, you know, they get blessed, and then in their blessing, they go right back into sin, and then they get into trouble. And this cycle just goes on and on and on. And there's stuff in the book of Judges that's so wretched and so vile, I wouldn't even want to read it out loud to any audience. So this is a bad time, okay? It's a bad time. So Ruth starts, you know what, I think this is interesting. I haven't told any other service this. I think it is interesting that Ruth's story is so different from the book of Judges that God wouldn't even let it be included in there. Because it's such a story of hope during bad times. By the way, aren't you glad, given the fact that we're living in some rough times right now, aren't you glad that even in bad times, God still does good things with people who are willing to give him a chance? So now we you know when it was. It was in the days when the judges were ruling. Number two, still in verse one, a severe famine came into the land. And God is saying, look, if I can't get your attention, I'm going to turn off the rain. A man. We know him, Elimelech. His name means my God is king. A man from Bethlehem, Judah. You're right. That's where Jesus was born. Left his home and went to live in the country of Moab. Now, knowing what you know about Moab, you don't need to raise your hand. But how many of you know that's a bad call? That's a bad decision. It is a wretched decision. He should have known better. Hey, I'm not going to ask about you, but I'm going to talk to you about my fault. What is it I say when someone calls me to account for a bad decision? I had to do it. Because people ask you about a bad decision like, what were you thinking? But when they ask us about a bad decision, it's really interesting how that we play the I had to do it card. I had to do it. And I'm sure that when Elimelech did what he did, that there were people who asked him, you know, because they, they, they said, you know, Elimelech, we drove by your house and we saw the real estate sign in the yard and we saw the, the truck, you know, and, and we heard you did the one thing that no Jewish person should ever do, you sold your land. And we don't understand. Why are you doing that? And can you hear Elimelech? And Elimelech talks like dads today talk. Well, I just had to put food in my kids' bellies. I had to do it. But he didn't. You know what? When they come back years later, or when Naomi and Ruth come back years later, there are people in Bethlehem who never left. You know, it's a strange thing. When we say we had to do the wrong... Could I just stop for a moment? You don't ever have to do the wrong thing. Never, ever, ever. But I, there were people that didn't go to Moab. And, and here's something else. When he sold his land, he, he, had, he had pocket cash. Naomi later on will say when she's coming back, we went out full and we came back empty. Let's make sure that we understand something here. Elimelech is not trying to put food in his kid's belly. Elimelech is going to Moab to make his fortune. Strange, isn't it? How bad decisions and Lying go together. And I'm not talking about just lying to other people, sometimes lying to ourselves. 
This is interesting. I want you to look at something. In Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, and we're reading out different translations, I realize, but it says they went to sojourn in the land of Moab. Verse 2 says when they reached Moab, they settled there. Those are two very different Hebrew words. Because I'm sure there were a lot of Jewish people that asked Elimelech, man, what are you doing moving to Moab? Oh, we don't plan to stay. I'm just going to go over there. We're going to make some jack, and I'm going to get on our feet, and then we're going to come back. We're just going over there to sojourn. But that wasn't what he intended to do because verse 2 says they went over there and they settled. They bought a lot. They engaged a builder. They got the kids checked into schools. They got connected with the utilities. They lived there 10 years. I mean, it's strange, isn't it? When we make bad decisions, it's like we start lying. And worst of all, to ourselves. Well, that isn't the worst of it because every time I read the book, the worst part of Elimelech's decision is found in the last part of verse 1. You're looking at this, please. Taking his wife and his two sons with him. I want to talk to all the heads of households here today. Moms and dads, single dads, single moms, who are head of households. The worst part of making a bad decision is that we take people with us and oftentimes the people we love the most. See, here's the thing. I'm talking to some of you that were on the other end of this. Somebody made a bad call. It was your husband or your wife. You didn't have anything to do with it. You just like went along. Or in many cases, your mom and dad. Years ago, you didn't get a vote. Somebody decided to move to Moab, and you had to go too. I don't, I don't get into types and symbols much in the Bible. It's just not my kind of preaching. But there are things in the Bible, they, they, they reference other things. They're, they're symbols of other things. In the Bible, Moab is always a symbol of the fleshly nature, the carnal nature. And so what you really have here is a picture of a God follower, maybe a new springer, who gets out of God's will and does something that he or she thinks will make them feel better or have a greater sense of importance. And maybe somebody made a decision like that in your life and you got taken along to Moab and it wasn't what you wanted, it was just that somebody made a decision and they took their wife and kids too or they took you with them. Okay, let's go to work. And when I say let's go to work, I really mean that because I'm about to ask a question and I don't know all the answers. You're gonna know some too. Here's the question. Why do good people make bad decisions? I mean, I think Elimelech and Naomi, they were good people. I mean, I think they're people like us. I think they're, they're, they're like new springers. You know, back in the days when I used to counsel, I would have people sit in my office that made horrible decisions. And yet I just loved them. I was drawn to them. It was like, I mean, listen, guys, I've talked to people that wound up embezzling hundreds of thousands of dollars. You know, it's real easy to think those are evil people that always started out to do wrong, but you know what it was? It was somebody that decided to take $20 and pay it back later. I mean, I've seen people make catastrophic decisions, and it's like, gosh, I really like this guy. I'd love to go fishing with him. I'd love to play golf with him. Why do good people make bad decisions? Well, I thought of some answers. You may think of some more. And think about, especially in the, in the time of the judges and how everybody was behaving, Maybe it was just that everybody was doing it. Then, you know, when I was a kid growing up, a lot of times, and I had real good parents, I would would go home and I would announce to my dad that I want to do something. He'd say, you can't do it. And I would say, why not? Everybody's doing it. 
I don't know how many of you had a dad like I did. Um, my dad would say, if everybody jumped off a cliff, would you jump off a cliff? But if my dad got tired of saying that, here's what he would say. He would say, no, everybody's not doing it. And I'd say, what do you mean? He'd say, you're not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> but it could have been that's why he did it. I mean, that's the reason why a lot of us have done a lot of crazy things is because all the people around us are doing it. I mean, in the time of the judges, look at this. If you have Ruth 1-1 open, turn one page back and look at the last verse of the book of Judges. It's, a, it's like an epitaph on a tombstone. It says, in those days, all the people, good morning, America, how are you? All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. In other words, right is how I see it. I don't have any standard. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Everybody did what seemed right. I love how the message has it. People did whatever they felt like doing. That's, that's the world we live in today. Can I go a step further and be even more personal? That's the 2016 church of Jesus Christ today. I find that people inside the church do pretty much whatever they feel like doing, oftentimes just like people outside the church. And so maybe a little like, well, what's the difference? I mean, everybody else is doing it. Could have been that he just felt, and this is the one I've been told from time to time, maybe he felt like he had a special reason. People used to tell me this when I would counsel. It's like, Mark, I know this is ordinarily wrong, but I want you to hear my story. Because when you hear my story, you're going to know that I have a special reason for doing wrong. One more time, I want to say it. Nobody's got a special reason for doing wrong. Nobody's so special that they have a reason to do wrong. But every once in a while, we can feel like, and this is the reason why people wonder, why do, why do high-level ministry leaders get into trouble? Well, they feel like they're special people, and they have special dispensation to do wrong. Listen, guys, I want to tell you something. I believe God loves me very much, and he's being very good to me. But if I start cheating on Mary Alice or if I start treating people badly, if I start lying to people, God will deal with me like he will deal with anyone else. In fact, I'm going to guess God will deal more harshly with me because to whom much is given, much is required. I just want to make sure that all of us understand nobody's got a reason to do the wrong thing. Or it could be that, here is another one, maybe Elimelech just got discouraged. Maybe he said, I've tried to do the right thing. It got me nowhere, so now I'm going to do the wrong thing. But I'm going to guess it's this one. Pressure. You know what? When we're under pressure, we don't think clearly. We get into that fight or flight thing. The weird thing is we're not thinking clearly, but we think we are thinking clearly. And the reason I know that we think we're thinking clearly is let somebody try to talk us out of a bad decision. But we're not thinking clearly. See, here's the thing. When Elimelech decided to leave Bethlehem Judah, he already knew everything bad about Bethlehem Judah. But he projected onto Moab all of his fantasies about what life could be. So consequently, and, and here's the thing, whenever we're under pressure, Satan will exploit that. And he'll come along and he'll give us what appears to be an easy way out, but it's never really an easy way out. It just looks like one. Like, for instance, I've had guys come to me back when I used to counsel, and they would say this. They would say, you know what? And there's no inf infidelity or anything in the relationship. It was just he and his wife were having a hard time getting along. And he would say to me, you know what? I think I just married the wrong woman. Well, tell me why. Well, we just don't get along. And she just disagrees with me about everything. And, and so I guess I, I just think I married the wrong woman. And here's the, here's the one. I think God wants me to be happy. In other words, I think God wants me to have whatever I want. That's very convenient. 
So I think I need to leave my wife. And I've got this woman that I work with at the office, and she understands me. She doesn't understand her husband, but she understands me. And so, since I married the wrong woman, and I'm not happy with her, and God wants me to be happy, then I need to go over here. Now, what's happening at that moment is that guy already knows everything he doesn't like about his wife, but he's projecting onto this other woman all of his fantasies about what he expects her to be like. Now, listen, guys. Way too many times in my career, I've had that same clown come back a year later begging me to say, Would, you know, is it okay if I could go back to my first wife because she was an angel and I didn't know it? <laughs> now, I mean, that could happen to any of us in various situations. It's just that when we get under pressure, we're not thinking clearly, but we think we are thinking clearly, and Satan will come along and give us what looks like an easy way out, and we'll look at everything that we're dealing with now, because we know the bad about it, and we'll project onto that easy way out all of our fantasies about how we expect life to work. And that's what happened with Elimelech. He did. Now, let's get personal here for a moment, and I'm not doing this to make us uncomfortable, I'm doing it to help us. We've talked about reasons why people make bad decisions in a sort of existential way. But let's get real practical. I really think there are three levels of bad decisions as I look at my life. And most of my bad decisions fall into this first category because I had good parents and I grew up with good teaching and good training. Okay, here's the first category. The statement goes something like this. I knew it was a bad decision all along, but I did anyway. Or I know it's a bad decision, but I'm going to do it anyway. The reason for that is stubbornness. You ever have this experience? You got a friend who's about to blow up her life or blow up his life. And you're just thinking, you know, they don't know that it's not a good thing. So I'm just going to like go to Starbucks and sit down with them and I'm going to show them how that what they're doing is not going to end well. And as soon as they hear that and they realize that what they're about to do is wrong, they're going to say, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for opening my eyes to this. And I'm so glad you did this and I'm not going to do the wrong thing. Now, how many of you have been in a moment where you're expecting that and you make a perfectly good case on how they're about to do something that won't end well and they look at you and say, I know it's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. Now, listen, guys, there's, and that's where most of my bad decisions come from. That's just stubbornness. That's stubbornness. Okay, let's talk about a second one. It goes something like this. I thought it was a good decision until I made it, but the moment I made it, I knew it was a bad decision. Now, and I'm not trying to be hard on any of us. It's just that's an absence of due diligence. That's carelessness. I've had ladies that would say to me, you know, I thought I was marrying the right guy, but the moment, I, the, moment the preacher pronounced us husband and wife, I knew instantly it was the wrong thing. Now, I believe them. See, because here's what happened. They wanted it to happen so badly, they ignored all the red flags and all the warning bells, and it's like, well, if I can just cross the finish line, but the moment they cross the finish line, it's like all those concerns and worries hit them at one time. It's like some of you guys who have bought cars, and you, just, you know your budget did not allow for a new car, but the dealership just pulled you in. <laughs> You're driving down Kellogg Greenwich, and it's like, see the dealership, <sighs> I got to go in there. You have no business in there. But it's like, I am just, I'm just looking, you know? <laughs> and then you make the mistake of opening the car in the showroom and sitting down. Smell that leather. <sighs> and you look at the horsepower on the sheet outside. You go home and you talk to your wife, and she's saying, we can't afford it. 
And you say, oh, I think we can. We move this around, move this around, move this around. And you just keep pressuring her and pressuring her and pressuring her. And finally, she says, just go do what you're going to do. And you leave the house and say, well, my wife wants me to buy this car. And you go to the dealership and you sign your life away and you're like making 66 payments on this car and you're like, oh, I don't know how, but you're not going to have this car. And you finally, get, you know, they, they tell you it's all yours and you get into the car and you push the starter and you get out on Kellogg and it's like, what was I thinking? Because now you've got it and, the, and all the craziness of it is hitting you. So I think there are people that would say, I thought it was a good decision until I made it, but instantly I knew it was the wrong decision. And that's just the absence of due diligence. But it's this third one that makes me want to talk to you today, especially. Because New Spring has a lot of young adults in it. And guys, I hear this more often than I want to. It is like this. Mark, I thought it was a good decision. I didn't even know it was a bad decision until all the consequences hit. And the reason for that is nobody ever told them it was wrong. See, there's some of you here, a handful of you here that are in my parents' generation. And there were just things that you knew were wrong from the very beginning and things that you knew were right from the very beginning. I'm from the baby, baby boom generation, and most of what's wrong in the world is my generation's fault. And, and my, our parents tried to tell us what was right and what was wrong. So when we did wrong and we suffered the consequences, it was like, y'all are way too young to know this group. There was a, a rock group when I was in junior high, called Three Dog Night. And again, none of you knows who Three Dog Night is. But Three Dog Night had a song, and I still hear it every once in a while while I'm in, you know, going into stores or something. And it was a song about a guy that went to an, an acid party or a, you know, a party where they're having hallucinogenic drugs, and he's like having all these weird experiences. And whenever time they come to the chorus, it's, Mama told me not to come. <laughs> and, and honestly, you know, I mean, that's the thing. In my generation, we were told. And when we did the wrong thing, we knew we were doing the wrong thing. But you know what? There are a lot of you that are in the millennial generation, and nobody's ever told you. No, and, you know, there were, there were things that parents told their kids were wrong in my parents' generation and in my generation. And now in my generation, it became accepted. And now they're my generation, are parents, and we actually tell our kids that wrong things are right and right things are wrong. In America, we've been on a sign-changing binge for about 60 years. And it's like, it's like we, we revel in changing the signs. It's like we find a signpost that points in an area, and we, we say, what if we flip it? And it's almost like, well, what's, what's bad about that, man? Everybody used to believe it's wrong, but now we believe it's right. Everybody used to believe it's right, but now we believe it's wrong. And it used to be that things that were, were, were wrong are now celebrated and things that were right are now punished. You know what? We really need to be real careful about changing God's signs because God has a sign that points to heaven and he has a sign that points to hell. And if you switch those two signs, you may wind up five seconds after you die in a place you don't want to be. But we live in a generation that's like changing the signs. So what does it matter I mean, you know, I don't like to be told what I don't like to hear, but by the same token, if something can keep me from what we're about to talk about in point two, I need somebody to speak truth into my life. And the second point of our message, let's go into it right now, it is simply this, bad decisions have consequences. Look, look, look at the text with me. Ruth chapter one, verse three. Elimelech died and Naomi was left. 
she and her two sons. They lived in Moab for the next 10 years, but then the two brothers, Milan and Kilian, died. Now the woman was left without either her young men or her husband. So they have a lot of funerals in Moab. Why? You know, somebody would, might say, well, Mark, did God kill them because they made a bad decision? I don't, I don't think so. It's not what the Bible says. You know what? If we make bad decisions and put ourselves in a dangerous or an unhealthy place and danger happens and, and a lack of health comes to our lives, it, it was just a foregone conclusion. One of the reasons why I believe that was, for instance, you ever, you ever read in the Old Testament how there are all these um, dietary restrictions that God had on the Jewish people and all these cleansing things? You know, They didn't know about microbiology and germs back then, but God did. And, and experts have looked at that and said, wow, this would have allowed people to live a pretty healthy lifestyle even in the midst of a wilderness. In fact, God would tell them, I, I saw this a couple of times in the, in the Old Testament, in Exodus and in, in Numbers, God said to them, if you will just listen to me, you won't have the diseases that other nations have. Well, Elimelech and his family went to a very unhealthy place with a very unhealthy lifestyle. And I think we have a clue because Malan means sickly and Kilian means wasting away. I think they went to a very unhealthy place and bad decisions have consequences. You know, listen, today we're told that the word loving means you never let anyone know that a bad decision has consequences. If you're loving, then you don't talk about consequences. Listen, guys, there's a word for that. It is insanity. Yeah. Listen, if I'm about to make a bad decision and it's got consequences, would somebody please love me enough to say, Mark, don't do that. Bad decisions have consequences. I, I wrote something this week in prepping for this message that I've never said before. I think in 21st century American Christianity, we fail to understand grace. Because in some religious tradition today, grace can almost seem like God loves us, so therefore, he will never allow us to experience the consequences of bad choices. That's not what grace is. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. It means that no matter what we do, God will still love us. And it means that even if we do wrong, God is still, as we're going to see in just a few moments, willing to work in our lives. But grace does not mean that God will not allow us to suffer the consequences of a bad decision. And so what I wrote this week that I've never said before, I feel like it's time for us to ask this question. Because the question is, are we God lovers who fall into sin? Or are we sin lovers who fall into God? I'm a God lover who falls into sin. I mean, I can't be perfect for 30 minutes. I get up in the morning and I just want, I want to live for God today. But I'll start screwing it up and I'll do something wrong before I realize it. I'll get angry at somebody who cuts me off in traffic. I'll, I'll say a word to Mary Alice, you know, I don't mean to say it. It's like, I, but I'm a, I don't want to do it. I'm a God lover who falls into sin. That's what grace is for. But I think that there are people today who are sin lovers. And for about an hour on the weekend, they fall into God. That's not Grace. And so what this book teaches us is that there are consequences to bad decisions. Now, here's the thing. And I've made a lot of bad decisions in my life, and I've suffered a lot of consequences. That can be a teaching moment. Okay, 
Do I have everybody's attention? Because it's so important what I'm about to say. If you make a bad decision and you suffer the consequences and you own it and it becomes a teaching moment, although it's not saying that a bad decision is good, you have redeemed in a fashion that bad choice because you have allowed good to come out of something that was bad. It was like, I made a bad decision. I learned from it. I'm going to own it. And this is a teaching moment. But it is a strange thing a lot of times when people make a bad decision and they suffer the consequences. It's a strange thing how a lot of people at that moment will double down. Your, your experience is like somebody makes a bad decision, they suffer for it, and you like go to them and you try to encourage them and help them, and it's like, you know what? It's not my fault. Now, l- l- let me show you what happens. Because see, here's the thing. What we're talking about is denial, and denial is always a fake coping mechanism. We think we're coping, but we're not. We're just kicking the can down the road. Naomi is the only person of the original four who are left. And, and here's the weird part about it, New Spring. You know, they went to Moab to get rich. They wound up just as broken. Actually, they, they wound up more broken in Moab than they started out. And so Naomi decides that she's going to go back home. She's going to go back to Judah. But here's something really, really big. And this, if we miss this, we probably will misunderstand the last part of this message. Naomi is not going back to Judah because she wants to get close to God again. This is not a strategic move. It's more of a move of surrender and throwing in the towel. But it's an angry throwing in the towel. So Naomi starts back home. Okay, we're about to meet our hero. Her two daughters-in-law, the widows of her two sons, say, we're going with you. One daughter-in-law is Orpah, not Oprah, but very close. (laughs) Orpah. And the other is Ruth. And so Naomi, after a while, realizes how crazy it is to go back home with two Moabite daughters-in-law. So she says to them, go back home. And Orpah says, okay, I guess I will. And she's crying and she leaves. But Ruth, as we're going to see, and I can't wait to talk to you about this next week, because we're going to talk. Next week's message is called Change Agents, and it's all about people that turn a bad situation into good. We're going to have a great time with that. And Ruth says, please don't make me leave. Now, at that moment, I want you to pick up Naomi's state of mind, okay, because this is so important. Naomi says to Ruth, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. You should do the same thing too. Are you kidding me, Naomi? They burn children alive. How can you tell your beloved daughter to go back to her gods? Hey, nothing is more whack than a backslidden Christian. See, Naomi's angry, and we're going to see this. Look, and by the way, don't be too hard on her. She's been to a lot of funerals. She says in verse 13, the Lord has raised his fist against me. She gets back home, and the woman says, hey, is this Naomi? And she says, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. She said, call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? Naomi's saying, it's not my fault. It's not our fault. It's God's fault. God hit me. God made my life bitter. We, can't, we went to Moab full, but now he's bringing me home empty. You know, if Naomi had been going back to Judah as a strategy, her talk to her daughters-in-law would have been very different. It would have been something like this. You know, girls, 10 years ago, we made a really bad decision, and we got out of God's will. 
and things haven't gone well for us. But you know what? I'm going to go back home, and I'm going to try to find a way to connect with God again. I, I need to reconnect with God. And we have a God who loves us. Listen, guys, if she had made that speech, she probably would have rescued Orpah too. You're just listening as, as a Christian or a child of God who's mad because they made a bad decision and they've suffered consequences, and now they're doubling down, and they're living with the fake strategy of denial. Well, let's end on a high note. Let's end on this third thing. God loves people who make bad decisions. Now, New Spring, he doesn't love bad decisions. You know, every once in a while, people will tell me, hey, if you don't like my choices, you don't like me. That is crazy. I don't even like a lot of the decisions I make. How crazy is that? God doesn't love bad decisions, but he loves the people who make them. You know the rest of this book, and we're not feeling it today, but we will starting next week. The rest of this book is, is, a, is an awesome story. It's a story of greatness. It's a story of heroes. It's a, story, it's a love story. It's a story of redemption. And you know what God is going to do? God is going to step into this broken, dysfunctional family, a family of bad decisions. And just a few generations later, he is going to produce from this family a king named David. And several generations after that, out of this family, he will bring a savior named Jesus. You know what God is asking you and me today, all of us who make bad decisions, which is all of us? He is asking us, are you willing to trust me with a broken life. Who am I talking to here today? I could be talking to somebody, and you say, Mark, I've been making a string of bad decisions, and I'm 50 years old. What about me? Or 60? 70? Or I'm, I'm, I'm 20 years old, and Mark, I made just a whole series of bad decisions. What should I do? Listen, guys, I don't care how old you are. Make God, Lord, of what's left. If you've made bad decisions, you can come straight to God. If you'll come to him as a strategy and not as a throwing in the towel kind of thing, but if you will come to God as a strategy and say, I need to reconnect with my maker, then God will, he will receive you just as you are. And what we saw is that God loves people who make bad decisions. He hasn't stopped loving you at all. He loves you as much as he ever loved you. He's not crazy about your decisions, but he loves you. Come like you are right now and make him Lord of what's left, and he will take your life. And listen to me, if he can bring the Son of God, Jesus Christ, out of this crazy family, he can take our lives and our families, and he can do awesome things. Do you believe that? Would you trust him? Yeah. Okay, I tell you what, let's pray. We're, I just want to make sure that there's somebody here today, and you're saying, Mark, I want to connect with God. And, you know, there's not a one of us who hasn't made a ton of bad decisions, starting with me. But you, re you realize the reason why we put a cross up in a Christian church is this about Jesus dying there to pay the price for all our bad decisions. And then three days later, he came out of the grave. And the Bible says all God is asking from us is that we'll come to him, be willing to turn around and to invite Jesus Christ to be our Lord and Savior. If you want to know how to do that, I'm going to pray a prayer. And if you want to, you can join me in praying this prayer. I'll pray it slowly. You ready? Here we go. Dear God, I make many bad decisions, but I believe you love me anyway. And I'm coming to you 
I ask you to forgive me and to make me your child. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. Thank you for hearing my prayer and forgiving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you just prayed that prayer, I have something I want to give you. It's a packet that has a DVD and a book I wrote and a coupon for a new Bible. If you will go to guest services at any entrance and just say, I pray with Mark, they will give you the packet. Next week, change agent. Thanks for being here. God bless.